0: Welcome, ASI, to the Sabbath afternoon panel discussion. I hope you're looking forward, as I am, to more blessings from God this afternoon as we open his word. I want to invite you to join me, if you wish, as we kneel for prayer to open our meeting. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon with hearts full For you have brought us blessings of fellowship, of light from your word, of the Holy Spirit working on our hearts. And now we pray that you will send your spirit once again to be with us during this time of thinking about and meditating on your word. I pray that you will be with each of the members of the panel as they share with us insights that you have given them for our edification, and that we may each leave here inspired to walk closer with you each day, that we may reflect you to the world around us as you would have us do. And Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity that we have had to be here together and to enjoy these blessings. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: Well, we welcome you this afternoon, and what a wonderful theme that has been developed here at this convention, have you been blessed? Lift him up and lift high the cross, that wonderful anthem that we just uh, sang. I'm delighted to to see so many of you here and so many of you joining us from perhaps your homes. If you're at the hotel here on site, come on down and join us here. this afternoon, we're going to just have, a, I think, just an extension of what was a wonderful blessing in the early morning meeting, and also a wonderful uh, blessing at the 11 o'clock hour when the cross was lifted up by Pastor Finley. Was that a blessing to you? Yeah. Now, if you visit many Seventh-day Adventist churches, and I've visited many, in fact, I'm thankful to be back in Grand Rapids. Uh, One of the favorite places I lived growing up was Grand Rapids. It was somewhat nostalgic to come back here and see some of the very streets and then meet some of the folks here. And I have a warm spot for Grand Rapids. But around the country, you'll visit churches and you'll see what will you see on the front of many Seventh-day Adventist churches. Let me give you a hint. There's usually three of them three angels. Well, I'm glad it was so uh, easily uh, identified by at least one person here. Some signs I've seen, they're so contemporary that you don't know exactly what the three things are. But the idea is of those three angels. And then if you look at the Seventh-day Adventist Church logo, you have a world, you have a Bible, the foundation of our faith is Scripture. And we want to reach the world with a message. And you see these three angels, Parts of a flame, and those three parts are again pointing towards those three angels. And then, of course, 3ABN, three angels broadcasting, which is carrying this today. What is the significance of those three angels? Why are those three angels there? And of course, you know, they come from the heart of the book, or maybe you don't. Uh, They come from the heart of the last book of the Bible, that book being the book of Revelation. So if you're at home, or even if you're joining us here, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 14. We're going to be looking a lot at our Bibles today. And so I want you to have your Bibles open, and we're going to spend a lot of time in those chapters. And the special focus we're going to have today is on the third angel's message. So, uh, the three angels' message. Now, as I was talking to someone at a table at the lunchtime here at the convention center, it was a young man and looked to be in his 20s or so, and he said to me, why would I come to a discussion like this? I know you're just going to ask pillow soft questions as no, nothing going to be new. Uh, why, basically, he was saying, why should I come? And uh, I don't know if he's even here, but I tried to convince him as to why he should come. And this is my first question for our panelists. So I'm going to send this around starting at the far end here with James. He'll introduce himself, where he's from, and then I want you to convince that young man why he should stay with us for our three 30-minute segments looking at the subject.
2: Well, my name is James Rafferty. I'm from Lightbearers Ministry, a self-supporting ministry that works with publishing and printing and evangelism with the Adventist Church. And the reason why that young man needs to be, I hope he's here this morning, and why all of us should be here is because when you read the three angels' messages, just the verses themselves in Revelation 14, 6 through 12, you realize that there's very little room for soft, pillow-like questions.
3: I'm Mark Finley. I work at the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. The reason that young man should stay is three specific reasons. If you look out at the news today, the news is dominated with a conflict in the Middle East, Gaza, bombing, Israel. The Three Angels' Messages speaks directly to that question. I'll share with you why later. Secondly, what's taking place in Iraq? American bombers are dropping bombs. The Three Angels' Message speaks directly to that question and the whole issue of religious liberty and why President Obama made that decision. Thirdly, the great need of society today is understanding, am I of value, do I have worth in God's sight, am I a speck of cosmic dust in an evolutionary uh, world? The Three Angels' Messages speaks directly to that question.
4: Okay, I'm Gerard to I teach at Andrews University Seminary from the Church History Department. The three angels' messages are important because without those messages, you have not the slightest idea where we are in history of the Church and in history of the world. The culmination of the major powers that you see now forming reveal to anyone who knows those messages that Jesus is coming, Anyone who don't know those messages is confused and is facing the greatest crisis in their life.
5: And I'm Lindy Schwartz. I'm a physician. I'm the program director for the internal medicine residency at Kettering in Ohio. Um, And I'm actually thrilled by this question from a young person. It is nice to know that a young person does not want pillow soft stuff, but real stuff, meat. And so our charge then as a panel is to give the young people the meat that they deserve. Secondly, I believe that Seventh-day Adventism was never called to be a church, a denomination amongst others. We were called to be a prophetic movement, and this is essential to our prophetic message and this is what we're called to preach. So hopefully today on this, panel to, on this panel, there'll be clarity to the message of the three angels that allows the young people to find purpose and uh, meaning in the Seventh-day Adventist Church.
6: I'm Ted Wilson and I work at the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists and uh, To answer the question to the young man, uh, I hope he's here and I hope there are many young people here because the three angels' messages hit at the very core of who we are as Seventh-day Adventists entrusted with a unique prophetic message. And it answers uh, four R's that are so important in our life. It expands on them. Revival, Reformation, righteousness, and restoration. And all of this is centered in Christ.
7: Amen. I'm Ed Zinke, a businessman and theologian. have the privilege of interacting with a lot of committees at the General Conference and on some school boards. Um, I'm interested in this for all of the reasons mentioned. Excellent. Uh, but I'd also like to notice, if God is sending an angel to bring a message, I'd like to hear what it is. And particularly the everlasting gospel, how God intends to save us is pretty important to us. And then the particular message, he wants to introduce us to the creator of the universe and the one who by virtue of his created creation is also the judge of the universe.
1: All right, so creation, evolution issues, all of these. Man, I'm, I'm gonna stay. I mean,
7: I was thinking coming up here, Why should I stay? But
1: now I'm I'm with you, and I hope that he's with you as well. Well let's look at that passage. I hope you by now have your Bibles open if you just joined us. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14, and we're going to be reading, or I'm going to ask Ed Zinke to read for us, Revelation 14, verse 6 through 12. This is the three
7: angels' messages. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to those who dwell upon the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water." And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worship the beast and his image and receive his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength, into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Amen? I want to add
1: several verses from Revelation 18 because there is a fourth angel that amplifies the third. We'll talk about that later, but let's just put it in our mind. Revelation 18. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison of every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. So, those are the messages. Now, another question came in and said, look, simply explain what these messages mean. I actually here on location talked to a number of people that when I spoke with them about the three angels' messages, they didn't really understand or know what those were. And I imagine some folks that are watching as well might have that question as well. So, what we want to do is give a simple bird's eye overview of those messages and then hone in on the third angel's message. And to start that, I would like to ask a question to Dr. Damstiek, who's the, uh, the historian among us. Is the order of those first, second, and third angels, as mentioned, is the chronology important? Is there anything that we should know
4: about that? The problem that you have today when you don't hear this message in the churches is because people have forgotten or even don't know what is coming in the past, how they developed. And uh, uh, that is very important because if you read the history of prophetic interpretation, you have to wait until the 18th and 19th century before they took off as a flight. And the one who, of course, you have to keep in mind, you know, in the late 1800s you had, or 1700s, you had the earthquake, the falling of the stars, the dark day, the captivity of the Pope, the French Revolution, all of those things you find in the book of Revelation. And as a result, the Protestant world was stimulated in investigating. And then they started to focus on this prophecy, and specifically in the light of Daniel 8:14, the cleansing of the sanctuary, the 2300 days. And it was William Miller, that God specifically selected uh, and gave insight. In fact, early writing says angels of God, time and time again, visited William Miller and gave him insight in prophecy that the world has never known. And so here then you get the first angel's message, which is with the everlasting gospel. And all of William Miller's lectures were focusing on Christ and bringing people to repentance. But this angel's message called people to repentance in the context of what? Fear God, give glory to him. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. And so here the judgment proclamation came up. And then of course the creator came also up. This message was preached with William Miller from 1831 to 1843. As a result initially there was a lot of interest, but then people rejected it because it was connected with time, and you know, churches were closed for the Adventists. They were disfellowshipped. And then the attention went to the second angel's message. What does it say? The fall of Babylon. So what God has hoped to bring a revival in the Protestant Reformation, and revival was rejected, and the Protestant world fell of God's grace. The Catholic world has already fallen for grace during the Reformation, now the Protestant Reformation is felt. And now God created a new people. When the message of righteousness by faith and the message of the first angel's message was rejected, what happened? Babylon fell. And God then created the remnant church. The remnant. Why? To be a refuge for the rest of Christianity. Then the last message was, after 1844, after the disappointment. Friends, what happened? The new light was there. The light of the sanctuary. It was a sanctuary that gave us the solution to the disappointment. At the same time, the Sabbath came up. And as a result, a new movement started with a solid message. And friends, this was then the third angel who warned against what? The beast, the creator and originator of the Sunday, then the Protestant movement that followed. They were daughters of the harlot. And so here you see that now since 1844, we are are connected to the third angel. This is the period of the third angel. So we had the first angels before 1844. In 1843, 1844, we get then the second angel because of the rejection of the light that the Lord wanted to have. The Lord wanted to have here the whole people that witnessed the greatest event on planet Earth between the crucifixion and the resurrection, which is Christ starting on the final judgment. And so, friends, now we are living on the third angel. But the first and the second angels are still important because they include the gospel, proclamation. And anybody when we study this three angel's message, who rejects the, th- the first angel's message, will become a part of Babylon. And then worship him who created all those things, the Sabbath, but won't worship what? The beast or his image. And so here then, seven day Adventists are the worship leaders of the world and we don't need to go to Babylon to understand what worship is, are you with me?
1: Thank you, Dr. Domstick. Just then, briefly, the Millerite movement, or William Miller, from you said 1833 to 1843. Then the second angel's message was the message that Babylon has fallen, or there's confusion. They were kicked out of those churches. 1843, the preaching of Fitch um, in history, and then. The Advent movement arises 1844. A lot of doctrines are discovered up to the name of naming of the Adventist church in the 1860s, 1863. So that's the overview. Uh, would any of our panel like to add something else uh, to that historical overview that we had that maybe we need to, to push in there? And if not, I'll say something. Yes.
5: I, I think that the historical overview, I appreciate what Dr. Domsteed has said. Um, and I think the history probably goes back even further and includes uh, this, this message is given in the context of the cosmic conflict. And when you think about it like that, this conflict, these messages were given, especially the third angel's message, given in the context of the war in heaven. So the war took place in heaven, there's a problem in heaven, and this message somehow that takes place on earth gives the answer to that conflict that began in heaven. So I see historically this message began way back in heaven, with the war in heaven. And um, then you look at chapter 14, and, and we can go back there, because in other words in chapter 14 when it says, here is the patience of the saints, it says, here means under those circumstances we have a message. Okay. So I think that's an interesting.
1: Okay. Thing. So we have a cosmic, a great controversy theme. But then it brings it right up to this time. By the way, just to alert you to something, and then we're going to go on to our next question. The next uh, two verses in Revelation 14 um, are very interesting because it's like you have three, two, one, lift off. Because the next two verses talk about what? Then I looked and behold, verse 14, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having in his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle, and another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap the harvest of the earth, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And then there was this reaping, and that's picturing what? The second coming of Christ. So that chronology is so important. Three, two, one, lift off. The final three messages before the coming of Christ. Alright, let's continue on. Now uh, Pastor Finley, before we continue on.
3: When you look at Revelation 14, it's divided into three parts. And I think understanding the location of the three angels' message in the context of Revelation 14 is really important. In Revelation 14, verses one to five, John looks and he sees a lamb standing on Mount Zion. And there in this vision of heaven, he sees the redeemed from earth the living saints who've been translated. And he sees them following the Lamb wherever he goes. So Revelation 14 starts with a picture of heaven. It starts with an encouraging picture of the redeemed saved. What God is saying is, whatever difficulties you go through, whatever oppression you go through, whatever economic boycott or persecution there is, Keep your eyes fixed on the end goal, which is eternity. Secondly, if you look at that first five verses, as they follow the Lamb wherever he goes, Revelation 14 6 to 12, the three angels' messages tell us in practical terms, in end time, what it means to follow the Lamb. What does it mean to truly follow Christ? in the light of the second coming of Christ, in the light of end events. That's verses six to 12. Then in verses 13 and onward, it goes into, actually 14 and onward, it goes into that passage that you've quoted Don so well, the reaping of earth's harvest, which is the second coming of Christ. So you have a people, a message, and the event for which the people are prepared, namely the coming of Jesus. So in the light of the great controversy between good and evil, God encourages us with eternity, He gives us His last day message, and He focuses on an end time event that will bring an end to evil, suffering, and heartache.
1: Okay, we're going to go on and look more closely at the third angel's message now because we've had an overview. One last point from Elder Wilson though, and then we'll go to the third angel.
6: Uh, Thank you, Don. I just wanted to make sure that we didn't give people the impression that because these three angels' messages were identified with particular time periods as being introduced, that they're not still in the process of being proclaimed and that they are very vibrant today. I mean, the first angel, everlasting gospel, the judgment is still continuing, and we're going to talk about this, I know, worshiping him who made heaven and earth creation extremely important for us today. Second angel, confusion, Babylon, third angel, of course, which is now being proclaimed and will be proclaimed with power. So the three angels' messages right now are extremely vibrant and real.
1: Okay, so uh, Dr. Domstieg made that
7: point. You amplified that point. Uh, yes, Dr. I, I want to give us another context also for Revelation 14. Uh, the topic here is worship. You go back to Daniel uh, 3, and the topic again is worship. Are we going to worship the God of heaven or are we gonna worship Nebuchadnezzar? And the language that we have in chapter 14.6 actually comes from Daniel. To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. When we turn to Daniel 3, uh, we f- uh, chapter verse 4, we find the same reference to o people's nations and languages who are to worship uh, the image of Nebuchadnezzar and then at the end of that chapter, uh, then they are to worship the God of, uh, of the three worthies. And then moving over to chapter seven, uh, we finally then verse 14, then to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So the context here finally t- points us back to to Daniel and then obviously to Daniel 8. As well
1: let's look now then with thank you for that the issue of being worshiped. we've seen some context let's look now at chapter 14 and verse 9 and um, after i read these verses i have some questions for some of our panelists verse 9 the third angel followed them saying revelation 14 verse 9 with a loud voice if anyone worships the beast his image receives his mark on his forehead, or on his hand. What is that talking about? Who is the beast, Pastor Finley? Who is, or what is the image, James Rafferty? And what is the mark, Elder Wilson?
3: Who is the beast? The Bible says that in 2 Peter chapter one, verse 21, No. it says that all people should wake up in the auditorium. This is an important lecture. (laughs) You know, we have these things prepared just at the right time. Second um, Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, No prophecy is of any private interpretation. So when you're looking at any topic in the Bible, you do not have to guess. Seventh-day Adventists believe that the Bible explains itself. Isaiah 28, verse 10, For precept must be upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So who is the beast? The way we discover who the beast is, is Daniel and Revelation are the two Siamese twins of prophecy. Revelation does not introduce beasts for the first time in the Bible, so beasts are symbols that God uses to explain varying concepts or ideas. If you look at Daniel 7, you have a lion, a bear, a leopard, a, a very descript-like beast, some say it's like a dragon, Ten horns, a little horn coming out. Daniel 7, verse 17 says that the beasts which you saw are kings. Verse 23 says of Daniel 7, the fourth beast is the fourth kingdom. So we know the beast represents a kingdom. In the context of Daniel, it can be a political or religious kingdom. So how do you know what the beast of Revelation 14 is? In Revelation 13, it begins, verse 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a great beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, seat, great authority. And all the world worshipped after the beast. So we have the same four beasts of Daniel 7 in Revelation 13, verse 1. The those same four beasts the lion the bear the leopard like beast and the dragon then we say the dragon pagan rome gave to this new power after the breakup of the roman empire its authority so who is the beast of revelation 13 it is the it is the power the religious political power that received its authority from pagan rome but it would be a power that would that would be universal worship because verse 4 of revelation 13 says it's universal worship It would also be a power that would claim the privileges and prerogatives of God's equal. The Bible calls that blasphemy. You see that definition of blasphemy, Luke 10, about verse 23 and onward, verse 18. And so, who is this power? A power that would rise out of Rome, that would ultimately become a persecuting power as church and state united under the day in the early Christianity and down through the Dark Ages. It would be a power coming out of Rome that would reign for 1260 years, and uh, conservative biblical historians, not only Seventh-day Adventists, down through the ages, have seen the identifying marks of that beast power, not as a person, but as a system of religious authority, uh, taking uh, authority for the word of God that would grow out of Rome, namely the papal power.
1: Okay, thank you. and James, what is the image? And look, we have about a minute 30. So I want you to take 30 seconds on that, um, just to, on the image. Uh, in other words, there, there, there are other places you can get the entire Bible study. And I know that we want to be careful because we, uh, we're sensitive to, to people that are, that are listening. And God has many people in every single religion. And I think there's going to be more people from the power that you mentioned in that system in heaven than maybe even Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, But a little bit on the image and then we're going to take a break we're going to come back. Go ahead.
2: Well, an image can be identified two different ways. Uh, You could look at it in Daniel 3 as an image that's made out of certain materials that people worship. But in this case, the image is more like a mirror, a reflection of. So what we see here in Revelation 13 is a second power coming up out of the earth and it is reflecting the image of this first beast. It is mirroring that image. What we see in the first power, the first earthly kingdom in Revelation 13, is going to be mirrored by a second power that's going to rise to prominence in the earth in the last days.
1: We're going to take a break. And I want you to keep reading Revelation 14 as we meditate um, on the music that we're going to hear right now. We're going to come back, continue our journey through the second angel message, or just a brief comment on that. Uh, excuse me, through the through the beast, the image and the mark. And then we're going to look at the third angel's message. We've been talking about the three angels' messages, if you've just joined us. We've looked at where they are in Scripture, Revelation chapter fourteen, verse six through twelve. We've seen some context. We've now been looking a little more closely at that third angel's message. We've looked at verse nine. And we, in our last segment, looked at uh, identifying who the beast is briefly and then what the image is. And uh, just to remind you, verse 9, and then we're going to have Elder Wilson talk about the next, next aspect. Let me read verse 9 again. Then the third angel, Revelation 14, verse 9, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead, or on his hand. So, Elder Wilson, we've heard about the beast, his image. What about this mark? What is this mark?
6: Well, Don, it's mentioned, of course, in verse 9. It is also mentioned in verse 11. And it is always connected in both of those places with the worshiping of the beast and his image. So, there's something about the mark and the worship. And actually this does uh, represent very much the authority of the beast and the image. And what gives that, uh, that power, that authority? As we understand it from uh, biblical understanding that this comes out of an attempt to change times and laws which is founded in an understanding that it comes out of Rome and an attempt to actually change God's Ten Commandments so that the day of worship becomes one other than the seventh-day Sabbath. And in fact, the mark of the beast would be the worship of God on any other day than that particular day because that is a sign of God's authority. In fact, let's contrast the mark of the beast with the seal of God because the seal of God for God's people in the last days will be their adherence, their love of Him, and their observance of the day which He has ordained and made sacred, the seventh-day Sabbath. So you are sealed with a special connection with Him When you keep that day, anyone keeping a day other than that ultimately will be keeping the sign or the mark of the authority of the beast, which has changed the day of worship to another day. Uh, Actually, this is one of the most exciting topics to preach on. And um, earlier today I mentioned to you that I've been involved with evangelistic activity. I use Revelation of Hope, which is a beautiful series by Mark Finley, which is available to anyone who would like to actually do evangelistic meetings. There's no excuse for any of us to not actually share something in a very powerful way. But I want to tell you, when I preach on this message and many others, I am so excited when I look at the Word of God and how this is explained. I become reconverted every single time myself.
1: Amen. How many of you out there today know someone or you yourselves came into the preaching of the message of the Mark of the Beast? Anybody there today? I see a number of hands. I know in my family, my grandfather listened to that message and went out of that hall and the whole family became Seventh-day Adventist. Wouldn't be here today without that. Okay, so these are powerful messages. This is not pillow talk that we've had. How many of you agree? So I hope this young man is still here. This has not been pillow talk. We've talked about the, the beast, the image, the mark. But my question, James, I'm coming back to you now, is um, what is the connection between this message um, in verse 9 of the image and the beast and the mark, how could that be connected at all with this
2: idea of righteousness by faith? That's a very powerful question, Don, a very important one. When you research the history of our church, you go all the way back, well, you go way back to the apostolic time, but specifically back to the days of the Reformation. You go back to uh, Wycliffe. Uh, the Morning Star of the Reformation, you've got Jerome, you've got Hush, you've got Luther. All of these reformers had one thing in common. All of them were part of the church of the Middle Ages. Uh, All of them were strong Catholics. I was raised in a Catholic home, strong Catholic. I think Mark was too. But all of them fell in love with Jesus Christ and embraced the righteousness of Jesus Christ and realized that they couldn't be saved outside of that righteousness, that they couldn't be saved by their own merit, by their own works, by their own good deeds. And when they embraced that and they fell in love with that through studying the Word of God, they naturally tended to separate from a system of religion that is not just in one place or two places, but it is the religion of our natural hearts, our natural inclination to depend upon ourselves for salvation. They separated from that, from every vestige of Babylon, and they found themselves embracing what Martin Luther called sola fide, or this faith to faith, this righteousness by faith, this trust in Jesus Christ. And that's where we find the connection here in the Three Angels' Messages. Because the Three Angels' Messages is not just identifying a system of religion, it is doing that. The system that becomes Babylon or is Babylon in our understanding, but it's identifying every vestige of religious practice that places merit on the creature, on the human being. It's identifying for us, Jesus Christ, as the sole truth, way, and means to salvation. And that's what we see as a a connection here in Revelation 14. Mark brought it out. The people who give the three angels' messages first follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's what Wycliffe did. That's what Jerome did. That's what Huss did. That's what Luther did. That's what Zwingli did. All down through the ages, and that's what our pioneers did, our Adventists did. Uh, pioneers did. And that's what we are continuing to do. That's what I did when I first became in contact with Adventists. And my sister told me, as a born-again Christian, you should be going to church on Saturday, which I thought was absolutely ludicrous. But when I got into the Word of God and I I realized the words of Jesus, if you love me, keep my commandments, I could do nothing else but follow Him. And so the connection there is real, it's vital, it's practical.
1: Okay, so what I hear you saying is that you came out of that system which was a system that gave you no peace, gave you no rest really, didn't really give you a picture of the love of Christ. And as you came out of that system, just like the reformers did, you found
2: peace, you found happiness, you found joy, right? Amen. I I didn't go into a lot of details there, but there's one thought that that I want to connect with here because I learned a lot about God in that system. That's Mm -hmm. why in Revelation 18 it talks about, God says there, come out of her, my people. The majority of God's people are in these other religions and we don't want to in any way dis or, or uh, make them, us better than them or, you know, if you understand what I'm saying. But, yes, there was something more than just saying rote prayers every night and going to confession every week. There was an experience and a relationship that God was introducing to me to in Jesus Christ. Elder Wilson wants to
1: say something else, and then we're going to go to verse 10 and 11.
6: Yeah, I I want every Seventh-day Adventist who is here at ASI and everyone, whether you're an Adventist or not, watching on 3ABN to recognize that the three angels' messages is not some kind of scary, judgmental thing that we need to be afraid of. The very core of the three angels' messages is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is so saturated. It's talking about the everlasting gospel. It's talking about worshiping him and give glory to him. It's talking about turning from confusion and from a self, pull yourself up by your bootstraps religion to a religion that is totally focused upon Christ. So I hope that as we develop our understanding more about the three angels' messages and what we're doing, This is not just some kind of scary tactic. This is talking about turning people back to the true worship of God, which focuses upon Christ and his righteousness.
3: Yes. I'd like to make a comment on the relationship of the three angels' message and righteousness by faith. If you look at Revelation 14, and of course, Pastor Wilson quoted verse 6, the everlasting gospel, the good news that Christ is Savior, Redeemer, the good news of his life transformational power. But I'd like to look at the link in verse 7 with the Sabbath and righteousness by faith as it relates to verse 9 and the mark of the beast. To summarize quickly, verse 7, it says, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him that made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Worship him that made, worshiping the creator. When we keep the sabbath we rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ.
6: Amen.
3: So the sabbath is more than a legalistic requirement, but it calls us to rest in the atonement of Christ on the cross. The mark of the beast is a human attempt to substitute a human day based on human authority based on man's works. So the Sabbath is a symbol of trusting God as creator, God as redeemer, God who, who made us and fashioned us and God who saved us on the cross. So the Sabbath is a symbol of resting in Christ rather than accepting a substitute day part of man's works.
1: Okay, so having faith in God's words having faith in the right way, his way, and finding peace in that, right? Uh, thank you for that. Now, let's go to verse 10 and 11. And I just, for the sake of time here, I will read that. And I want to ask just a, one specific question out of those verses. And, of course, we could spend… There's books written on this. There's, um, there's many things that you can look more deeply in. But let's look at verse 10 and 11. He himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So the consequences in this verse for people that um, end up following uh, a system, the system of the beast, doesn't look too good. And it talks about something specific, and I want to throw this out to the panel. And the specific thing it's talking about here, and we won't talk about all the details, but just the concept, is the wrath of God, okay, and the cup of His indignation. In other words, the, whoever worships in this wrong way at this particular time in our history is going to be the recipient of wrath, okay? Now, what in the world could that have to do with the righteousness of Christ, Lindy?
5: Well, um, oftentimes when we think of wrath, we think in terms of our wrath. And our wrath is active, it is uh, aggressive, uh, and words like that. And there are examples in the Bible, and comes to the most notable one, which is Jesus Christ Himself. Uh, but for example, in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18, where it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It goes on and describes many uh, things that were going on that were bringing on this wrath of God against unrighteousness, etc. And Then verse 24, it says, therefore, God also gave them up. Um, Verse 26 says, for this reason, God gave them up. Um, Verse 28 says, God gave them over. Jesus Christ also experienced this absence of the life sustaining force of his father. He felt that. And so when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and the Bible describes that he was depressed. It says that he was very distressed. Exceedingly distressed. He was sorrowful. This was real depression as he looked at what the cup would be He did not want to go through that experience so clearly the wrath of God is something different than we could anticipate and and in fact Jesus Christ he he tried to avoid it so much Ellen White describes that he he fell to the ground clinging to the ground because he was being drawn farther and farther from his father. So as I look at that, I see that the wrath of God against sin and unrighteousness, and eventually against the wicked, is when the righteous God, sin and righteousness cannot inhabit the same space, and God will give you up. Jesus Christ withdrew himself from his, his son, and that separation from God uh, is what caused his death. That was the wrath of God that causes death. God wasn't killing his son. There was no physical blows. There was nothing like that. But there was certainly God abandonment. Jesus Christ, in fact, on the cross, and I got this from somebody, he was in such distress that he spoke actually two languages when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I forgot the two languages, but there were two. Uh, but the, my, my God, my God was in one language. The, why have you forsaken me was another. The wrath of God was so intense that that destroyed him.
1: Okay, anyone else want to add to that? What is the connection? What I heard you saying is that you described the wrath. In other words, he went through this wrath experience. So what does this have to do with righteousness by faith as it connects to us? Anyone else want to add to that? And if not, I will. Okay, uh,
4: let's hear from Dr. Domstee. You know here, this is the last message of mercy. God has everything revealed to hear about his love and care for us. Now this wrath is put out in full strength. And why? This goes only into effect after the world has decreed the genocide of God's people. So you have to see this in contrast. God reveals everything what he can do through Christ's righteousness, and then be rejecting this and issuing a decree for the elimination of God's people from planet Earth, that is the end.
1: Okay, interesting point. In other words, the wrath of the dragon is being poured out unmixed against God's people, and so there's an intervention here, is what you're saying. Interesting. Okay, James.
2: Another parallel here, Lindy made it uh, with Romans, and Romans is, is a great. God in the context of Revelation, because in Revelation, you have the everlasting gospel being preached, last message to the world. In Romans, you have the everlasting gospel being preached in verses 16 and 17. And what Paul is saying, what Revelation is saying is there's no wrath, no full wrath, until you get a full revelation of the love that God has for you and His undying desire to have you in heaven. And it's only when you fully reject that full revelation of what God has for you that God gives you over. God is one of two choices. This is this, the first choice is we say to God, your will be done. The second choice is God says to us, okay, have it your way. And so you have a full revelation of the gospel, of God's undying love for us, and that only in rejecting that does God, as Lindy said, give us over, give us over, give us over. Revelation 14, the same thing. The everlasting gospel goes to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and only as we reject that, that love of God are we allowed our own decision to go in our own way, handed over to what we choose.
1: Okay, thank you very much. The wrath of God. Now, are you getting a sense of how this connects with righteousness by faith. Uh, Christ received the wrath that really should go to us? Isn't that not true? And that's the good news, we heard about that this morning. I want to bring one text in, if you would mind. I'm the moderator. Would you be moderate enough to let the moderator modulate? Okay, let me just, this one text, and I, I believe it was brought out by Pastor Wahlberg this morning in an excellent presentation on the same passage. And that is from Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. And uh, let me just read that. Um, Verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Uh, How many of you think that is a beautiful text? So what is happening in, I'm going to ask my panel if I'm right because I'm the moderator, is what is happening here in Revelation chapter 14, a demonstration of God's love in terms of taking that wrath for us? We don't need to be in that picture, right? Because he took that wrath for us, isn't that what it's teaching? Anyone want to add anything else about this? Because we want to hasten on to the next verse. Yes.
2: Romans 2 also builds on this theme. In verse 4 it says, Do you despise the riches and goodness and forbearance and longsuffering of God? That is the gospel, the everlasting gospel. Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But are you heart, are you, verse 5, But after the hardness and impenitent heart, are you treasuring up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath? and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So we're the ones in God's goodness that actually choose and tread.
1: Okay, one last, uh,
3: one, 1. 1.5 last things. Go ahead. <laughs> um, if you define the wrath of God as God's judgment against sin, then you could say that on the cross, Christ experienced God's wrath, His judgment against sin. He took the full condemnation of sin. In Revelation 14 when it talks about the wrath of God poured out, it's God's judgment against sin and it is if you look at Revelation 15 verse 1, it talks about the seven last plagues, in them is filled up the wrath of God. So God gives every human being a choice. We can either accept the judgment of God against sin that was manifest through Christ on the cross, or God gives us up to our own choice and we receive his judgment against sin, which is the condemnation of sin and the cleansing of the universe from sin.
1: Amen. So, I don't know, that fills my heart with a great measure of gratitude. It really does. Now, Lindy.
5: In the chapter on, on uh, Gethsemane in The Desire of Ages, Ellen White, this is, that's one of the most beautiful chapters written in the universe. But Ellen White describes this experience of Jesus Christ beginning to feel the wrath of God on him. And statements like this she makes, she says, behold him contemplating the price for the human soul. And that's when Ellen White said he clung to the ground because he felt himself being drawn away from his father. Then she says, terrible was the temptation to let the human race bear the consequences of its own guilt because he was innocent. In other words, this was a huge temptation. The wrath of God is so significant. It was a huge temptation for him to escape it. And then she says, the humanity of the Son of God trembled in that trying hour. He not now you know and so he was so upset, he was praying for himself. In fact, he she says he wanted an intercessor. He was so tempted to escape. And then she says that the fate of humanity hung in the balance. So the beauty of Jesus Christ, and this is for the young people, the beauty of Jesus Christ allowing himself to be separated from his father eternally in order to save mankind. In fact, she says that he counted the cost and he said, I will, sa- will save mankind at any cost to myself. That's just beautiful. Amen.
1: amen. amen. Yeah. Amen. So, you know, Matthew 26, uh, 26 and 27, 38 and 39, you might want to jot those down, but those always come to my mind in this discussion, because He took the cup. He said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup. That's that cup of wrath. Take it from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will be done. And what powerful words uh, on the cross uh, for for you and I. uh, We could linger here forever, and I think we will in eternity. Um, We could linger here forever, but I we have to hasten on because I want to focus in on these last few verses um, that we have here. Uh, Verse 12, and we're going to spend the rest of our time in this segment and the next segment on this verse as a part of the third angel's message. Verse 12 of Revelation 14. Let's read it. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Alright. Is there something unique in reading all these verses about the Seventh-day Adventist understanding of righteousness by faith that's different than the Reformers? I want you to keep that question in mind as we go forward, okay? We've heard uh, James remind us that the Reformers saw many things, but is there anything unique we have And then in looking specifically at that verse panelist, verse 12 that we just read, I want to look now, look at those parts, but you can add in an answer to that other question as well. And I want to start here with Elder Wilson. Uh, I don't know, when I read this passage earlier, Elder Wilson, (laughs) and recognizing (laughs) what you do in terms of a leader of of an unruly group of 16 million children, (laughs) in a sense, 18 million, Sorry, I guess I (laughs) forgot some of the kids. Um, I thought about this word patience. Here is the patience of the saints, and then here are those who keep the commandments and the faith of Jesus. So I want to ask you, Elder Wilson, what is patience and how do we get it? What do you see in this passage? And then secondly, Dr. Domstieg, what does it mean, is it keeping the commandments? How vital is that? And then number three, what is the faith of Jesus? Lindy. Okay, so that's what we're going to go with. So, first off, Elder Wilson, patience.
6: Well, from a very practical standpoint, uh, we all need patience. And uh, sometimes we get into situations where we're, you know, getting very antsy and uh, unsure or annoyed, and we need patience. Uh, the word also can be understood in this verse as perseverance. Uh, continuation, a a sticktuitiveness, steadfastness. Now, all of that, including practical aspects of patience, are not qualities or attributes that are normally found in human beings apart from their creator. And I just want to underscore that in order to fulfill this verse, to have the patience of the saints, whether it's in a practical setting or in a committee meeting, at a church board meeting, in, in a, an annual council, uh, in your workplace, in the home, whatever it is, it can only be found, the patience and the perseverance in a sense of spiritual activity, it can only be found in your personal relationship and dependence upon Jesus Christ. There is no possible way that you can manufacture enough poise, enough uh, approach that people will say that you are really under control, self-control, without somewhere along the line showing that you are not connected with the Lord if you somehow give way to impatience it is only connected with the Lord that we can have this patience and perseverance to see the big picture and I think in this verse in particular from a prophetic and religious standpoint it's talking about people who are going to go through very challenging times how are they going to react And that can only be done again as we focus back on that righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ and the justifying and sanctifying power that the Holy Spirit works in us to help us to obtain that patience and perseverance.
1: Amen. Is there anything else the others would like to say? Uh, Do we need more of that patience? Do we need more of that endurance today? in our lives, and our homes, in the church.
7: Yes, Yes, I'm thinking in the context of the book of Revelation, you have periods of persecution without that, throughout that book. Finally, you have the, the souls under the altar. You have the question, how long, oh God? And so, so as Ted said, they're persevering. The, the Christians are, are being patient under this long period of time. Finally, chapter 12, you know, the terrible persecutions And here are those who have been patient, who have persevered, who have kept the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, uh, and who are ready for the second coming. Amen. Matthew
2: 24 also is really uh, significant because it's an end time prophetic chapter. And in that context, we also have the everlasting gospel being preached in verse 14. But just before that, it says, But he that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel will go to all the world as a witness to all nations, then shall the end come. So, use that word, patience, you mentioned it, it sometimes represents perseverance or endurance. Uh, we are not in a sprint, we're, this is, this, we've got, we've got to pace ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit and the grace of God to fill us fuller and fuller and fuller as we get closer and closer and closer to the end of time. Because we there's a test coming that we see in these verses, this coldness. This love waxing cold There's a test coming that is going to call the people to bear witness to the gospel in a time when we'll be hated of all nations.
6: And and Revelation 3 tells us, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. That implies that your grasp on that which you're holding on to must be strong. But again, that grasp cannot be strong unless you are drawing the strength from the one you are leaning on and that's Jesus Christ.
1: So what I'm hearing again and again here is that the patience of the saints is really the patience of Jesus that he gives to the saints. That's what I'm hearing you say. Uh, I I don't know. I know my wife realizes that when I manifest patience, that's coming from Jesus. That's just, I love you, honey. So, (laughs) okay, let's go on to the next To the next uh, nuance here in this, I think it's so important, this verse. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God. So, Dr. Domstein, what about this keeping of the commandments at our table or a table I was sitting at? They were talking about this idea of obedience when I was asking them about the three angels' messages, something unique that uh, the Adventist church talks about. So talk to us about obedience and, uh, and the, the commandments there.
4: You know, I want to present it in the context that Adventists frequently hear from other Christians that we are legalists, you know, everything, and you, and you are eating peanut butter and, and, and tofu and all the other things. <laughs> you know, you may not like it or not, but uh, what has that to do with our religion? You know, immediately after the disappointment, the sanctuary gave us the solution To the 2300 days. Now it was Joseph Bates that says, You know, why did Jesus not come? And he studied it and he saw a text in Revelation 11, verse 19, because they all felt that we are now under the seventh trumpet. You know, the sixth was uh, completed with the fall of the Ottoman Empire, and now we get the seventh trumpet. And then uh, the temple of God was opened in heaven. And the ark of his covenant or testimony was seen in the temple. Now that was an interesting revelation. Why in the last days do we need to see an open temple and the ark? And they studied our pioneers and they discovered, hey, there is something missing here. We keep all the commandments except the Sabbath. Now Joseph Bates then wrote quickly a number of pamphlets and shared it. Then he visited Hiram Edson. Hiram Edson was the creator that God has given specifically light on the sanctuary doctrine. And he was reflecting and Bates heard that insight of the sanctuary. So he visited Edson and explained the the, the Sabbath. And suddenly Edson said, aha! now I see it. Why is the sanctuary open to the most holy place? Because before Jesus comes we will keep all God's commandments during the day of atonement. Because the temple was opened. And that was a key element. And of course uh, they started to spread about it and they said, "Well, it's legalist, legalist. But this was very important. Furthermore Christ finishes his ministry in the sanctuary and then stops interceding. What kind of lifestyle do we have to be believe then? Can we still continue to sin and sin and then when Jesus comes, zap, we are perfect? No. This is the time when we have to prepare to live with Jesus without knowingly, remember, knowingly sinning. The time when we can get the victory over everything. Then God continues to lead our pioneers and that was in the time of the 50s and the 60s. God gave us a light on not the moral law of the Ten Commandments, but also on the physical laws. And God revealed to Seventh-day Adventists that transgression of God's laws, whether it be the Ten Commandments, the literal law of the Ten Commandments, or the natural law, the law of the human organism. And suddenly here the health message came. Seventh-day Adventists need to keep track of all God's commandments the moral law as well as the physical law and here the mission of Adventism connected with the three angels messages was what? Preparing the world for Jesus coming by obedience to the natural law the law of the humanism because if we keep the human laws of the human organism our mind will be clearer God communicates through what? Through my thumb? Through my nose? No, through the frontal lobes And only if we have pure blood, active blood, provided by good nutrition and exercise and other things, then we get the maximum communication with the Holy Spirit, ready for the time of trouble. So you can see here how important this is, and it is not legalism, but because we love Jesus and His righteousness.
1: Okay, so we have 18 seconds and we're going to hear some special music. Now, let me just recap briefly then. We find that the patience of the saints comes from Jesus, and this obedience was discovered. We want to talk about whether or not that comes from Jesus when we come back. You just joined us. We're looking at the three angels' messages, and we're looking especially at that third angel's message, and we've been spending some time going through the text. How many of you like Bible studies like this? Um... I think we could do a lot more of this, just looking at the Bible together. Let's look then. We've been looking at verse 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith and the faith of Jesus. We've looked at patience. We've looked at obedience. I said when we come back, we'd say one other thing about obedience, um, just uh, in passing, and that is uh, Romans chapter 1, I think, verse 8. Uh, Paul said that he had received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. Uh, In other words, it it appears that obedience uh, is also a gift of Jesus. It's something he gives us, isn't it? So uh, it's something that he pours out through his Spirit. So we looked at patience, we've looked at faith, and now that last phrase. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. What is the faith of Jesus? is the word of importance. And I know Dr. Dimesik, you mentioned that to me, so so did you also, Lindy. So I'm gonna start with Lindy, and then we'll open up to the rest of the panel. Is there anything that we need to hear here about the faith of Jesus?
5: You know, I believe that um, this is the element in the three angels' message, or the third angels' message, that gives inspiration and power to the believer I do want to read, and you must forgive me, this happens to be one of my favorite topics. I want to read some quotes, first of all, and make a little bit of a a discussion. So first of all, Ellen White, speaking of the the third angel's message, she she said um, a part of the third angel, but the faith of Jesus, she says, which comprehends more than is generally supposed. Let me read the beginning of that. The message that was given to the people in these meetings, and that was during the 1888 era, presented in clear lines, not alone the commandments of God, a part of the third angel's message, but the faith of Jesus, which comprehends more than is generally supposed. And it will be well for the third angel's message to be proclaimed in all its parts, for the people need every jot and tittle of it. If we proclaim, the commandments of God, and leave the other half scarcely touched, the message is marred in our hands. Elsewhere, Ellen White says that the soul-saving message, the third angel's message, is the message to be given to the world. The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are both important, immensely important, and must be given with equal force and power. The first part of the message, she says, has been dwelt upon mostly. The last part, casually. The faith of Jesus is not comprehended. We must talk it, we must live it, we must pray it, and educate the people to bring this part of the message into their home life. She describes this, by the way, she also has another statement that she says that the faith of Jesus will promote real heart piety as nothing else can. But then she says this, the third angel's message is the proclamation of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. One little note, elsewhere she did say that, uh, someone, some have asked me, is the message of justification by faith, the third angel's message, then she said it is in verity. So justification by faith and what she's saying here now must be the same thing. But she goes on, the commandments of God have been proclaimed, but the faith of Jesus Christ has not been proclaimed by Seventh-day Adventists as of equal importance, the law and the gospel going hand in hand. She says, I cannot find language to express this subject in its fullness. The faith of Jesus, it is talked of but not understood. What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Jesus becoming our sin-bearer, that he might become our sin-pardoning Savior. He was treated as we deserve to be treated. He came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. And faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is the faith of Jesus. Now there's more to this that I, I want to talk about. And Mark this morning had uh, a most beautiful sermon. Um, and so I did want to read some quotes to, to amplify some Summarize of
1: Summarize what, what you just Mark read. Mark said this.
5: Summarize what I just read.
1: So the faith of Jesus then, based on those quotations that, that you've covered with us, is what in your own words?
5: Okay, so the faith of Jesus, I believe, first of all, is, I believe it's twofold. Jesus Christ lived by faith. He became the sin-pardoning Savior only by faith. Ellen White makes that clear. That faith of Jesus that allowed him to do everything that he did, to be separated from his Father, to be willing to be lost eternally without his Father, to even succumb to the death of the cross, it was all by faith. And Ellen White makes that clear, that that, that was by faith. Um,
1: so the faith and, of Jesus then was the ability to go through the Jesus Christ cross lived experience. by
5: faith that cross-experience took faith, it also relates to his obedience. Jesus Christ was righteous even by faith. The Bible says, "Whereas not faith is sin. Now, I just wanted to try and highlight a little bit some of the things, you know, Mark mentioned a, a, a quote today, but as you read through some quotes in the Desire of Ages related to Jesus Christ, coming as a man, and she describes that she said, um, he accepted the working of the great law of heredity, What these results were were is shown in the history of his earthly ancestors. She brings him very close to us, makes us recognize that he took upon himself, he really became as us. And in that flesh, Jesus Christ was victorious. Um, And uh, some of the difficulty relates to the concept of, I know, uh, before we were in the back there, uh, Ed mentioned to me, uh, do I take the position faith of or faith in? There are two schools of thought, and I'm going to use one technical term. And that is, it is either a subjective genitive, I will explain that, or objective genitive. Genitive meaning possession. Whose faith is it? Is it Christ's faith or is it our faith? When Jesus Christ said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? The faith that saves is not my faith, it's Jesus' faith. And when the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, Mark covered it so beautifully today, but it says that in the gospel is is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith. I believe that that is a concentric expression that begins first from the creative faith of Jesus Christ, but includes the answering faith of the believer. And that faith is so powerful, it enables the believer to obey all the commandments of God. We cannot decide to be obedient. Only by the faith of Jesus can we become obedient to all the commandments of God.
1: Okay, I can say a lot
5: more, but <laughs> I, I, I don't, you I don't have won't. given
1: us a good starting point. And uh, I know there might be some others that have something to say. I know. Uh, Ed wants to say, and I think Dr. Domstik as well, maybe some others, go ahead.
7: Yes, I, I want to ask the question, what is faith? And this really ties in this with this whole chapter that we're talking about. Uh, it is easy for us to take faith and redefine it to make it into a work. And then if we, if we can turn faith into a work, then we get to earn our salvations by works again, which is, of course, the tendency of all of us. Uh, and so we want to say, uh, we walk by sight, uh, whereas in 2 Corinthians, it says that we walk by faith, not by sight. We want faith to be the same as the end of a scientific conclusion. We want it to be the same as a historical conclusion after careful study. We want to make it the same as uh, the banker gives me a, a loan. He's checked out my health, my income, my net worth. Uh, my life insurance, how i paid debts in the in the past, and finally he comes to the conclusion, uh, 99.7% chance Ed's gonna pay this back, and so I'll give him a loan. We, we like to define faith as a work, but uh, we find in scripture that faith is the gift of God, not our work, it's the gift of God, and faith is itself the substance. It's not based upon some other substance, and it comes by hearing the Word of God. Now coming back to the Reformation that we spoke about uh, earlier, and that is salvation by faith, sola fide, there was a parallel doctrine, sola, uh, sola scriptura. Both of those are parallel doctrines, and they come from the same source. Salvation is a gift of God. The Bible is the gift of God. We're not to disturb salvation by mixing in our own works as a foundation for salvation, neither do we, do we uh, compromise Scripture by attempting to synthesize it with other philosophical systems, other uh, scientific systems, or other systems. As I went through the history of theology and saw how many times Scripture was compromised by synthesizing it with other philosophical systems, I was reminded again and again of these passages here in Revelation 14, where indeed uh, God's church had fallen away and had compromised His Word by bringing human ideas in place of the Word of God.
1: Okay, faith
7: of Jesus, it's a
1: gift. Patience is a gift. It appears that obedience is a gift, Um, not a work. Anything else that you'd like to add? on this, Dr. Domstik, and any other? And let's make these comments brief because we need to go on to a next, a little, we've laid a lot of foundation, so we want to ask a next question after this. A Couple more brief context, Dr. Domstik, then, and then Elder Finley.
4: Yeah, you know, I would like to return to the Bible. And uh, if you look carefully, and uh, translators have a difficulty, you know, in or off, and they don't know what to do with the off. So all the modern translations basically dealing with in, in, even Revelation 14. But let me just quote you here in Romans 3, 22. Here we see that faith of Jesus produces God's righteousness. Now the question is, does my faith produce God's righteousness or Jesus? Very important. Then Galatians 2, 16 and 22. It brings justification. Is my faith bring justification or Jesus' faith? That makes all the difference. Uh, Ephesians 3.12, access to God, is it through what? Faith of Jesus. Paul really knew it. Uh, Philippians 3.9, God's righteousness is brought. So if we look at our own faith, how strong is it? Frequently, you know, it is like ropes of sand. I mean, we have a determination and next next week, I mean, we, we fall. Friends, only through Jesus' faith is anything possible? Therefore, in Revelation 14, you have here a data: keep the commandments of God, and what? And keep the faith of Jesus. How can we ever keep God's commandments? It's only through not my faith, but through Jesus' faith. You see the point? Mm-hmm. So this is what we. And it took me a long, long time to realize it, and and it will take a long time. But we have to realize, in, in you know, Ellen White reveals it that. The message that was given at that time showed our insufficiency, our inability to do things, and it is the faith of Jesus that provides everything. And so that is the key.
3: Pastor Finley? What is the faith of Jesus? Simply put, it is the quality of faith that Jesus had given to me as a gift by God at conversion. And that measure of faith, that quality of faith, that seed of faith that Christ places within our hearts grows as we study His Word. What is the faith of Jesus? It is the ability to trust God as a friend well known in relationship with Him. It is Jesus' faith that comes as the result of knowing him operating in my heart. So our text says, here is the endurance of the saints. Here is the endurance of the believers. Here are those that hang on in face of an economic boycott. Here are those that never give up. They keep the commandments of God. Why? Because Jesus' faith is dwelling in their hearts, living in their lives, enabling them to be triumphant.
1: Amen. Okay. We've laid a big foundation here, and how many of you enjoyed the panel so far? Um, I know I've uh, I've heard some new things and some uh, some some heartwarming things, and my question then is to the comp- to the panel two questions: Is there something unique about Seventh Day Adventists and their understanding of righteousness by faith? What about what you've been saying? Uh, would in terms of righteousness by faith, is any different than, than say, the Reformers? Is there any difference between this? Um, and uh, if so, what is that? Um, and I know this needs to be stated uh, humbly, but is there something that is unique and different? And I'm going to come to Elder Wilson first on this one because he's been taking a little break there, and I want to make sure that, uh, that he keeps busy with us.
6: Well, I think the righteousness of Christ and the unique understanding, perhaps, that Seventh-day Adventists have is in its totality and all-encompassing righteousness of Christ. The justification and sanctification are a complete package and are not separated into distinct aspects of which you can choose one or the other. Uh, Once you accept Jesus Christ, and Steps to Christ makes this very plain in chapters 7 and 8, that there is a, an immediate uh, connection with the Holy Spirit that helps us then to become more and more like Christ. So we have sancti- justification and sanctification. The other little aspect that I would like to mention, and it's not necessarily a difference from the Reformers, but it is an aspect that is unique to Seventh-day Adventists in the most part. And that is our understanding of the sanctuary message. And the sanctuary message is so complete, it gives us a very profound understanding of the entire process of salvation and almost everything in that sanctuary service points to Jesus Christ. Uh, And I think the more we can amplify and share the sanctuary message not only in our churches but with the public the greater our contribution will be to people to fully understand what is the righteousness of Christ
1: okay let me summarize that and then I'm going to go around the horn on this question very briefly I just want brief comments from each of you but what I heard Ella Wilson say is that uh, the the faith of Jesus um, in the text, it even says it, if we turn it upside down. The faith of Jesus leads to, uh, which is a gift, leads to the, o- the obedience to the faith, which is commandment key, in the context of patient endurance, which is another gift, all from Jesus and that foundation. So I hear you saying then that justification goes with sanctification, and that's fully expressed in the sanctuary. In other words, every aspect, everyone had to be depending on someone by faith throughout the entire thing, but it was a something that was leading to their sanctification as well. So that's what I hear you say. That's your contribution to this, James, then Elder Finley, then Dr. Daimstein, then
2: Lindy. And I want these brief because we want to go to this next question. Go ahead, James. Revelation chapter 14 gives this unique representation of us in the context of the history of religion in the world. Here are they to keep the commandments of God. God has had a people who kept His commandments all through the Old Testament and the faith of Jesus, God has a people today who don't recognize the commandments but they do recognize Jesus and they put their faith in Jesus. God wants to develop a people who not only put their entire dependence on Jesus for salvation, but they also keep the commandments of God. And even though they keep the commandments of God, all ten of them, they still trust 100 percent in the doing and dying of Jesus Christ. And that is the tension that you find in a people who are developed by the everlasting gospel in Revelation chapter 14 before Jesus comes. It's a people that have never existed on planet earth before. Because in the Old Testament, they kept the commandments, but they rejected Christ when he came as Messiah. In the New Testament, they believe in Jesus, but they dis the commandments. They were nailed to the cross.
1: Okay, so your unique contribution is once again kind of a reframing of the same thing. They have victory and tension with this, this, this focusing on Christ. Go ahead, Pastor Finley.
3: Seventh-day Adventists as Bible believing Christians, do not see righteousness by faith as sinning by presumption. We believe in the totality of Christ's life. That Christ tabernacled in human flesh. He revealed to us victory over Satan in his life. He provided justification for us on the cross. The same faith that justifies is the faith that sanctifies. There's no difference in the quality of that faith. So for Seventh-day Adventists, righteousness by faith includes both justification and sanctification. It includes what Christ has done for us in the past, what he's currently doing for us in the sanctuary, and what he will do for us. Okay, Dr. Domstik,
1: quickly then, quickly down through. Thank you. That's, that's saying it in this, the same thing. I'm hearing it. How many of you are hearing a the theme here? Okay. Three of you. Excellent. <laughs> How many of you are awake? Raise your hand to see if you're actually alive. Okay. Good. Okay. Let's keep going.
4: In defense of the Reformers, uh, yes, they were not always balanced, but uh, the first angel's message talks about the everlasting gospel, and it was preached by Wycliffe, Huss, Jerome, John Knox, Calvin. Calvin probably more sanctification and justification, but each one of the reformers addressed this, but some emphasized more than others. They may not have been that balanced, but they had the teaching. Now the uniqueness of Seventh-day Adventists is that we have integrated the balance of justification and sanctification in the righteousness of God in the three angels' messages. That is our great contribution, and that is only possible through the faith of Jesus. Okay, amen.
5: I believe that this is a very important question. And um, the answer has to be, the question is, is there something unique about the Seventh-day Adventist understanding of righteousness by faith that is different than the Reformers? The answer is absolutely yes. The reason is that Ellen White said that this message, the rest of righteousness by faith, is the third angel's message in verity, which means that if the Reformers preached that, they were preaching the third angel's message in verity. The other additional thing is that it. I do not, I believe that Seventh-day Adventists more than any other denomination can preach the gospel with greater power and the cross of Jesus Christ differently than everybody, uh, everyone else. Mark mentioned those things today and we won't get into all those things because I can't, there's not enough time. But this message that this church was given was the message of the loud cry that brings on the latter rain. For that reason, this message that we preach is unique. Our understanding is unique. The understanding, if presented appropriately, will bring on the loud cry and the latter rain. It has to be different.
7: Ed, final word on this and then we'll go to our next question. Yes, I I think this has been pretty well covered here. Um, Okay, well then we'll go to our next question. Okay, let's do that. All right.
1: All right. (laughs) All right, because our next question I think builds on that, if we had this understanding Now I heard Dr. Domstick say that it took a while for him to figure this out, he'd have a list of texts, and he said, look, you know, I came to this. Would the rest of you agree that you had to, to, to come grow in your understanding of where you are today on this? But my question then is this, if this is true and we seem to have figured some things out, we wouldn't be presumptive to say we figured everything out or covered everything, why are we still here as a denomination? Why are we still here? Is this message of righteousness by faith the faith of Jesus? Is there something holding us back that's connected to this? Why are we here? I want to open that up to uh, the panel.
2: I'll start down here if you want. Okay, start down there. Luke 18, verse 8. uh, Lindy mentioned it earlier. Sorry, uh, Lindy, I called you Andy. Twin sister, right? (laughs) Uh, I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Now the last part is the part I want to emphasize. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? This is an incredible question and Jesus answers it in verse 9 in a way. And the reason why I think this is so important is because I really think that we need to be practical. We've got to move to the practical part of all of this. And how does this relate to me and how does this relate to the way I relate to people what can I take home today that's going to make the faith of Jesus and all of the three angels' messages practical to me in my life? And so Jesus asks this question, when I'm coming the second time, am I going to find this faith of Jesus on planet Earth? And I think he's asking that question because we have struggled to understand what it is and how it's manifest in our lives. So here it is. He he, he gives this parable in verse 9 to those which certain of those which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And I wanna stop right there for a second and this is the issue. Our natural inclination is to trust in ourselves that we're righteous. Our natural inclination, the religion of the natural heart is righteousness by works. And how can we know as Seventh-day Adventists, how can we know as Christians in general that we are trusting in ourselves or we are trusting in the faith of Jesus? That we have the faith of Jesus or we have our own faith and our own works, our own righteousness. And Jesus gives us the answer here. He says in verse 9, He spake this parable unto certain which trusted themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That's what's missing. In our message, in the way we communicate, in the way we interact with people, we despise others by counting them. And the word here in the Greek is by counting them as nothing. Jesus was despised. He was rejected of men, etc. The way that we look at Catholics and Buddhists and Hindus and atheists, the way that we look at our neighbors and our friends, the way that we relate to people who are not of our faith, who don't eat the way we eat, dress the way we dress, believe the way we believe, act the way we act, indicates whether we are trusting in ourselves or trusting in the righteousness or the faith of Jesus Christ.
1: Okay, so you're saying the reason we're still here is because although we understand theory, we're despising each other and we need to repent of that and ask God to give us that sense
2: of respect and kindness to one another that we're missing. Well, I would say it this way, I would say we need to realize that but for the grace of God, there go we, our our entire dependence, our sanctification and our justification is entirely in the doing and dying of Jesus. His perfect life, sanctification. His birth and death, justification. The, the proud heart strives to earn salvation, but our title and fitness for heaven, desire of ages 300 are found in the righteousness of Christ.
1: Pastor Finley, why are we still here? Did we miss something about this
3: righteousness by faith discussion? In my thinking, there are three main reasons. If you look at the totality of scripture, go back to the time of the flood, the accumulated figures of sin reached a certain level And a sovereign God said, that's enough. The demonstration of righteousness by Noah is there. If you look at Revelation 14, same thought. You have the two harvests, the harvest of golden grain, the harvest of gory grapes. The harvest principle, I think, is a biblical, valid principle. So the first reason, why are we still here? In the great controversy there'll be the fullest manifestation of evil and wickedness in this world to demonstrate what Satan's way of life is like before the whole universe so that sin will never rise again. Second reason, the Bible says that the grain will fully be ripened, the golden grain for the harvest of God. There'll not only be a manifestation of the fullest demonic hellish powers, but there'll be a manifestation of the love, the grace, the glory of God. So in the context of the great controversy, in a sinful, fallen, wicked world, we will see wickedness come to harvest, and we will see the righteousness of Christ manifest so the glory of God, which is his character, will be revealed to the world. In that context of the people that are on their knees praying, seeking to manifest the character of Christ, When the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, that is total commitment. He'll manifest his his hand. He'll come to claim his own. So when we see that happening, the Holy Spirit will be poured out, loud cry will be given, and the gospel will go to the world. Why are we still here? The accumulated figures of sin are rising. God is developing a people that he can safely give his last day message through. One last sentence. I believe we can hasten the coming of Christ but there's a point beyond which we cannot delay it.
1: Okay, we have five minutes, which means I'm giving you one minute, Dr. Domstick, you one minute, Lindy, two minutes for the president.
4: <coughs> the tragic thing is that one of the characteristics that God has given this church and Satan is very angry about is the testimony of Jesus. How much attention do we put pay to the testimony of Jesus? That is the key element This, if everyone uses this mandate for their lives, we will see an evangelistic explosion, reformation, revival. In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been sent into the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been um, entrusted the last message of mercy to a perishing world. They have been given the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's message. There is no but other work of so great an importance. There are, they are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. This has been my motto for many, many decades. My whole doctoral dissertation is dealing with the Three Angels' messages. All my outreaches, my DVD, and all the thing, my tours—everything—the Three Angels' messages.
1: Amen. You went over a bit, but I can't do anything to you now. One minute, Lindy, and then two minutes for the president. Seriously, we only have three
5: minutes. Sadly, um, I don't want to take Elder Wilson's time, but sadly I believe that uh, we're not supposed to be here. I think Ellen White made it clear that we're not supposed to be here. Uh, Back in 1892 and many other times, Ellen White said that the Lord could have come before now, but it was because of unbelief that we remain. She also says, not to charge his delay on him. That's a fairly sad commentary. I think it would do well for us to think about that, why we're still here. Is there something that we need to recover and uh, really study?
6: Elder Wilson. As we review the progression of the children of Israel, the one thing that stands out is that they lacked a consistent dependence upon God. And that is what God is seeking today. We are described as Laodicea, chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 18. The Lord says, buy from me gold, the pure truth, uh, that you may be rich, white garments, the righteousness of Christ so that you can be clothed, and eye salve so that you can see a clarity, an understanding, total dependence upon the one who can provide all of that. The Lord is waiting for his people to completely depend upon Him. Uh, Dr. Dammsteg read one of my favorite quotes, the three angels' messages and all of this is, is to be front and center. We are not to allow anything else to absorb our attention and there are too many distractions in our lives. By God's grace, He wants to take us home. That's why we're asking for people to pray for the latter rain at seven in the morning and seven at night. The Lord wants to respond, and we need to humble ourselves before him.
1: Amen. 39 seconds Okay. Uh,
7: Salvation is about restoration of relationship to Jesus Christ. We cannot be restored to a person when we deny who they are, when we deny essential characteristics of that person. When we deny that God is our creator, and our judge. We put a wedge between ourselves and God that makes it difficult to be reconciled to him.
1: Thank you, panelists, if you've been blessed. Um, And I I wanna encourage you to continue studying this subject. Uh, The last question, why are we still here? Did we miss anything? I think we've got some answers there uh, that we've been reminded of by our panelists. And we've also talked about some of the practical differences that this could make in our life. And I, I, I wanted to say that even this panel discussion to talk about this was something very hopeful to me. Amen? The fact to talk about these things and to consider them is a cause for great hope. God is working in his church. He's working in people's lives. He's working the lives of leaders. He's working in organizations like ASI. And I believe God needs to do a lot more work. Amen? Amen. But he is doing that work, and we praise God for it. And God bless you for being a part of this. God bless the panelists. Thank you each for being a part of this. And heaven help us to understand more of that faith of Jesus. Amen?